0: Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Ida, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's pasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week, we are once again joined by Rav, Dr. Rachel Edelman, who is from Hebrew College, where she gained her smicha last fall and already explored in a wonderful podcast Shemot with us. Rachel holds a Master of Arts in Jewish Studies from Matan Baltimore Hebrew University and a PhD in Hebrew literature. Her first book, The Return of the Repressed, Pirke de Rabbi Eliezer and the Pseudopigrapher*, uh, was based on her dissertation work and published in 2009. And her second book entitled The Female Rus', Women's Deception and Divine Sanction in the Hebrew Bible was published a few years ago and I know that she is working on a few new publications including Daughters in Danger I think due to come out soon and you can also read her wonderful articles on the torah.com Over now Rav Edelman to speak on the week's Parsha, and we look forward to exploring Taruma with you.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me again on the program. I've so much enjoyed following the podcast and listening to some of the top scholars today talk about what their own expertise and the relationship to the Parsha Chavua. So today I'm going to talk about Parsha tuma. And in particular, this scene in which the description of the holy of holies is spelled out in very precise detail, where God will come to descend and speak or appear between the Kovim, between the cherubim, and engage in dialogue with Moshe Rabenu, Moses our teacher. And all prophecy from henceforth during the 40 years of the sojourn will take place in this very, very holy place. And I've been, for a very long time, I've been really intrigued by the idea that God condenses God's self into space. What that experience of the condensation of God's presence is, what brings god into the world what brings god into the world and how is god brought into the world um so in this week's parsha truma vettezaveh it's sometimes read together and sometimes a singular parsha but it really introduces the mishkan the tabernacle and the rest of the book of exodus will be concerned with the building of the tabernacle and it's only interrupted. So the, the orders to make the t- tabernacle appear in Tumat Bey, chapters 25 through 31. Then we're interrupted by the sin of the golden calf in chapters 32 and through 34, Kitisa. And then we get the carrying out of the orders to make the Mishkan, the tabernacle in chapters 35 through 40. So really God's containment in space is what preoccupies the latter half of the book of Exodus. And the way that Kasuto talks about it is it's a way of taking the presence of God at Sinai with them in their desert sojourn. I wanna read you the psukim, the concern with describing this holy center in the midst of the Mishkan. God says, build me a Mishkan that I may dwell in their midst. And the way that it's described is this way. So I'm going to read you a few psukim. So I'm reading from Chafeh, chapter 25, verse 16. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony, which I will give you, and you will make a covering. And the word for covering here is kaporet, you will make vasita kaporet zahav, a covering of pure gold. And it will be two cubits, amatayim, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two kuvim, these kind of angelic figures at either end of the kaporet, the covering, and one croove on one end, and one kruv on the other end, and the covering you shall make the kruvim on the two ends of it. And the kruvim, these cherubic figures, shall stretch their wings over on high, overspreading the kaporat, the covering with their wings, and their faces shall look one to the other. Toward the covering shall be the faces of the kovim, and you shall Put the covering upon the ark. The kaporet will be upon the ark, and in the ark you will put the tablets of testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. I'll read it in English, in Hebrew. I will meet with you there, and I will speak with you above the covering between the two. I will speak to you all that I will command the Israelites. So, this is a place of meaning, this place between the Kuvim. I'm really intrigued. What is the nature of this space and how is it essentially different from the building of the golden calf so first of all the golden calf the description of the golden calf appears in 32 it's made of solid gold it is a stand-in they say these are our gods that in the plural that took us out of egypt And they point to the golden calf and they dance around it and they worship the golden calf. The golden calf is made of solid gold. And the kuvim, on the other hand, by contrast, frame an empty space, what I would call a toch, an inner place mark from which God will speak out through that empty space to Moshe. So the kruvim and the kaporet, the cover that is over the luchot, over the aron, over the coffer, is not to be worshipped itself, but rather it's a place of theophany, a place of appearance. And this difference between the golden calf and the kaporet, the cover, which is made of the same solid gold piece as the two angelic figures on either end of it, the contrast between the golden calf and the kaporet actually motivates the rabbinic tradition to say that the kaporet, the cover, comes to lechaper, to atone for the sin of the golden calf. So I want to bring in a midrashic tradition, if I may, it's based on the very interesting phrase dizahav that appears in the beginning of Devarim. Let me see if I can go back to that. Actually, let me start. It's with the sifre, the idea that the kapoet comes to atone for the sin of the golden calf. One assumption that's at play in the Midrashic tradition is that the truma tetzaveh, the orders to make the Mishkan, actually follow the sin of the golden calf. There's no set chronological order to the Torah. And the Mishkan is then a means of expiation of atonement for the sin of the golden calf and an acknowledgement on God's part that some kind of condensation of God's presence is needed by the Israelites when they leave Sinai. So this is the Sifrei, this is the Tana Edek Midrash on Sifrei Deuteronomy. And it's based on the place name in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1, Di Zahav, which the rabbis come to understand as Dizahav, Zahav, meaning enough of gold. Rabbi Yossi ben Hanina says, You shall make a sita kaporet, that's the kaporet, the cover, You shall make the kaporet of pure gold, of zahav Tahoe. Let the gold of the kaporet, the cover, come to atone, yechaper, for the gold of the golden calf. I want to think about the word kaporet as not just cover, but cover over as atonement. There's a whole history of translation of the Kaporet, which dates all the way back to the Septuagint, the third century Greek translation of the Hebrew biblical text, where Kaporet is translated as hilasterion, meaning the site of expiation, the place of atonement from which our sins will be cleansed. And then Later on, based on that exegetical tradition, we have Capora as related to the word kippur, hidasterion, the site of purgation or cleansing or atonement. And the Vulgate, that is the Latin translation, takes this term and calls it the propitatorium, meaning the place of appeasement. God will be appeased through the kaporet. So it's not just the Midrashah tradition that assumes the gold of the kaporet, the cover, will cover for the sin of the golden calf. But really, it's embedded really early on in the translations. Later, pshat translations will say, no, it's just a cover or a lid for the coffer for the aron, where the luchot will be kept. And then later English translations come to call it the Mercy Seat. That's in the King James Version, the, the NRSV. And Martin Luther's German translation renders Kapoet as Gnadensul, the seat of grace. I want to think about Kapoet as atoning, having an atoning function, and also being the cover But in and of itself, the way it's being described is as an alternative site of worship to the golden calf. So what are the essential differences between the golden calf and this cover that's framed by two wings of the Kruvim? On the one hand, the golden calf is a place of worship. And on the other hand, the Caporet is a site of theophany, a site of God's appearance. On the one hand, the kruvim are two beings, two beings in relationship to each other who are facing each other, who frame an empty space. And on the other hand, the calf is only one and it's made of solid gold. The kruvim, on the one hand, that frame this empty space are heavenly creatures. On the other hand, the calf is earthly. On the one hand, the Kruvim are winged, and the calf has no wings. It evokes no flight. The Kruvim are part of the Ark's cover, made actually of the same solid piece of gold, whereas the calf stands alone. On the one hand, the Kruvim frame an empty space above the Ark of Testimony. And on the other hand, the calf is made of solid gold. This, to me, talks so much about the uniqueness about what the Tabernacle Project is. I feel that the Tabernacle Project is about God being in relationship with the people in a dialogic way not in a way that's fixed into one solid piece, which of course is what idolatry is all about. It's about fixation on the thing, on the dingness in the world. Whereas the tabernacle is inviting those to contribute from their own heart and for ongoing dialogue via the prophet, via Moshe. I want to end by thinking about The mystery of God's indwelling and the theological question at the heart of the Mishkan can God condense into particular place and yet exist beyond space? God is the world, the seat of the world, and yet the world is not God, as the dictum goes hu mekomo shel olam v'ein olamon mekomo. He is the place of the world, but the world is not his place. So the paradox of the experience of the Mishkan hinges on an understanding of the phenomenology of toch, of that empty space framed by the kuvim, by the cherubim. And the Ark is composed both Of solid gold and a vacuous space. It embodies sacred presence and absence. It carries the legacy of past failures and abiding relations, harsh judgments, and the still voice of forgiveness. That space between the Kruvim as a site of divine encounter and occlusion emerges from the resonant meanings of Kaporet both a locus of atonement and a boundary line between heaven and earth.
0: Thank you so much for exploring that with us and for such a, a wonderful take. I wonder also in your reading and your thinking, it, it really seems that you're pointing to the more figurative approach that the Tabernacle Project is versus golden calf, which as you say, is so fixed. I wonder if you might also comment, no. uh, it hasn't been the, the subject of your exploration here, but we also see that parallel often in the text in these parshiot, the parallel of the tabernacle and the creation of the universe. Obviously, the, the main difference um, being here is that The detail is much more intricate, and there's so much more space devoted to the tabernacle than the creation of the world. I wonder if you might share some thoughts on that.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, it's much more elaborate than the creation narrative, and yet there are wonderful resonances between the creation narrative and Genesis 1 and the making of the tabernacle, and one of the key ones is the word malacha, which is labor, work, creative work. God finishes his work on the sixth day and he rests from his malacha, his work in creation. And there's a way in which the making of the tabernacle is a continuation of creation, a continuation of God's creative work in the world, we've taken over that, that malach is the Sabbath. When we cannot, where the end of the orders to make the mishkan, we're told about the rule of the Sabbath. And then in the beginning, v'yakel kude when they're about to make the mishkan, God prefaces the commandments to make the Mishkan by prohibiting any work on the Sabbath. It's as if hold back. I know you want to do, I know you want to do, but know that the limitations of doing and making are described by the Sabbath. Yeah. So, in a way, we're doing imitatio dei. By our creative work. We're taking over God, but not to the point of infringing on sacred time.
0: Do you, in your presentation, echo what I think Professor Benjamin Soma elaborates on the revelation itself as being and. Amb- ambiguous. And in your depiction of the tabernacle, it feels like you're drawing many seeming contradictions together in the way that it's depicted. I wonder if you might comment on that and a kind of purpose behind perhaps these seeming incongruous elements being drawn together in the depiction.
1: So according to the documentary hypothesis, the author of the tabernacle instructions is P, the priestly source, and the author of the account of the golden calf, I think for the most part is attributed to E, Elohim is the primary name for God. And yet Chazal come along and say, no, 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 it's the same source, of course, it's Tohami Sinai, it's all God. And yet, the account of the golden calf does not seem to know the story of the Mishkan. And the Mishkan does not seem to know about the incident of the golden calf. That is, there are two different sources that are then woven together for the final stage of redaction. What I would like to suggest is that the stage of redaction, in and of itself, is an interpretive gesture, like Ben Sommer, although a little bit different from Ben Sommer, I would say that the redactor is an intelligent force, perhaps as Rosenzweig and Martin Buber attributed to, the redactor is the redactor with a capital R. He's Rabenu Moshe Rabbeinu, the fictive Moshe Rabbeinu figure who comes together as an intelligent force who says, no, actually, by bringing these two sources in conversation with each other, they are interpreting one another. So in that sense, like Ben Summer, I agree that in juxtaposing the two accounts of the golden calf and the Mishkan, we are called upon to interpret Midrash is already happening at the level of the redaction of the text. So Chazal come along and say, no, the orders of the Mishkan came afterwards, after the golden calf, and Ramban, Nachmanides will say, no, the order to make the tabernacle came before, and The golden calf is only a failure for them to be able to wait for God to address their need to contain God's presence. They were not able to hold back and use the golden calf as a stand-in for the need for God's presence in their midst. Did that answer your question? I went off on a spin. That I I, I really love the interview with Ben Summer. And yet, in some ways, I think I differ from him a little bit in the sense that I think the redactor, the final redaction of the text, there's something very interesting happening there with that juxtaposition of sources.
0: No, that was a wonderful midrashic answer. And uh, <laughs> further commentary on commentary and look forward to at some point, maybe having both you and Professor Soma together. I wonder maybe just finally if this is perhaps going off topic from this week's Parsha, but if you might share and give us a teaser for Daughters in Danger and what you're bringing to life with your forthcoming book.
1: So Daughters in Danger is about all those women who never make it to the stage of motherhood or wifedom because they're inadvertently sacrificed by their father or their father's negligence. I start with the story of Dina, the so-called rape of Dina and her silencing in the text. And then I look at the story of Jephthah's daughter who is sacrificed by her father And the rape of Tamar by Amnon, her half-brother, in 2 Samuel. And Bat-Zion, who's a figure, who becomes a metaphorical figure for Jerusalem, Zion, who also is sacrificed in some ways, who's banished, abandoned, defiled. And she talks back to God in Echa and confronts him and says, why have you abandoned me, essentially? And in the end, she's redeemed by second Isaiah. So I look at these daughter figures and the way that they present a critique of the father, could be the the proximate father, the human father, and ultimately the divine father and calls for really a, a justification of God's ways. And our questioning of God's ways. Yeah.
0: Thank you for planting some seeds for us. And we certainly look forward, hopefully, to welcoming you back to explore your book and for future exploration or future week, Parshio. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content that we have on our mothership, jewishquest.org. And to see more of Rav Dr. Rachel Edelman's wonderful work, you can check more of that out on the torah.com and of course um have books and other publications too we do look forward to seeing you all again